Hi friends. I know it's been a while. Uh, Some of you might have noticed I haven't uploaded a new episode in about three months. And that's just because I needed a little break. Life got busy and overwhelming and I knew y'all would understand. Um, But I did miss you and I'm really excited to get back into another round of interviews. This particular one is special because it's the first time you'll get to hear from three different women of color in one episode. And what's special about this is that you'll get to hear three interweaving stories from three diverse Latina, African-American, and Asian-American women. Um, In fact, you can find their stories in more detail in a book written by several women of color called Voices Rising. And so today, I'll just have three women from Voices Rising joining us, but I do recommend that you get the book to read the rest of the stories. Now, I've been reading a lot about story lately, and story as a sacred act of naming how God is at work in someone's life, even if that story is unfinished. Storytelling as a search for the holy, and I think we get some of that in this episode today. In fact, I recently read something that talked about story as a search for truth, and it pointed out the fact that people have always told stories as they search for truth. As our ancient ancestors sat around the campfire in front of their caves, they told the stories of their day in order to try to understand what their day had meant. Whether it was the roar of the cave lion or falling in love of two young people. And this is also true of stories in the Bible, of the complex and complicated stories that we find in scripture. It was Rachel Held Evans that said, Every time we retell stories of God's faithfulness in the past, whether around a candlelit cedar table or under a bright red and white striped revival tent, we are reminded that if God can make a way for Moses and the slaves, for Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, for the grandma living on social security, for the alcoholic marking 20 years sober, for the strung out pregnant lady mumbling incoherently about rutabagas, then maybe God can make a way for me too. Storytelling always has been and always will be one of humanity's greatest tools for survival. And so I invite you to an episode of The Protagonistas where you will get to hear stories, not just in and of themselves, but stories as tools for survival. And so I hope you enjoy and welcome to The Protagonistas. to read your chapters and I was so moved by your stories Uh, thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability and just for being so raw with just your experiences so if you guys want to introduce yourselves this is the first time I'm doing three people on a call so I'm excited but I'm also a little nervous I hope you know it works out well so yeah if you guys want to each of you take some time to introduce yourselves and a little bit of your background so I'm Teresa Kuborden um I I grew up in the Bay Area actually and I'm a my parents are immigrants from Taiwan, and so I was born here, and I grew up a little sheltered. My, my parents are both educated, got graduate degrees, and so I grew up in the suburbs. I came down to L.A. for college, and kind of that's kind of when God opened my eyes to just a world that was bigger than what I grew up with. And, and I was actually pretty lucky to grow up with some people that were a lot like me, um, so other Chinese, Chinese American, um, second generation. I had, you know, some friends that were that had the same experience as me. But then I also kind of had that growing up 
with immigrant parents' background as well, feeling different at school and at other places where I wasn't the only. So there were other people that were different from me. But then um, in college, I think when I went to USC, I my eyes were just open to a new place, a bigger place. And that's kind of also when I started taking my faith seriously. I was involved with university, and it was just a group that I felt like really took the words of Scripture seriously. And I got to just experience new communities, new friendships, friendships with people that were, were completely different from me. And, and then after college, I decided to move into, into South L.A. and, yeah, and just kind of explore urban ministry. But also, I was also pre-med, so I decided to pursue medicine after my two-year urban ministry internship. Awesome. Yeah, definitely want to ask you a few questions about that, because I think that your experience, I love how you have a very much... Like you talk about being like on both sides of things. And so Mm -hmm. I definitely want to ask you a few questions about that. But we'll have Claudia and Robin introduce themselves as well. So thank you, Teresa, for that introduction. If Robin, you want to go next and introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Robin Barron, and I grew up in Inglewood, California. I was raised by a single mom and grew up and stayed in in Inglewood, until I went to college in Santa Cruz. I am African-American, and one of the things that a lot um, is threaded throughout my chapter is just the lived experience of being raised by a single mom, being in the inner city, and how that kind of like shaped my desire to do urban ministry. And I think also um, one of the things that is threaded throughout my chapter is uh, what does it mean to be African-American in a world that is predominantly white and Asian? And so I talk a lot about that in my chapter. I talk a lot about healing and the experience of being outside of my community and bringing Jesus into those spaces that are hard. That's pretty much who I am. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I was really moved in your chapter as well, um, how you talked about going from like an all black space to then going to like an all white space and then kind of navigating both of those. So I thought that was really good. And I'm definitely going to ask you questions about that. Um, But next, we'll have Claudia introduce herself. Yes, hi. My name is Claudia Salazar, and I'm very similar to Robin. So I grew up in Los Angeles, but um, I actually grew up in a small city called Maywood that is is not very known in terms of what um, L.A. or L.A. County is. I grew up there with both my parents, also um, who were also immigrant. Uh, my dad was from Guatemala, and my dad and my mom was from Peru. And yeah, I mean, I grew up in the inner city. My experience, and this is also very much um, all over my chapter, um, my father was actually an addict and my mom um, was, you know, was a victim of domestic violence. And so I think growing up, I grew up sheltered in in some ways and then very exposed to a lot of traumatic things in another another way. So the funny part for me was I actually went to, um, when I was, I went to school in the the city, you know, I, I never really went outside of that area. And it wasn't until I graduated high school that, um, you know, I had to decide what to do with my life. And that's what took me to go to um, East Los Angeles College, which isn't very far from um, the cities that I grew up in. And so it was when I was in college that I um, I got I was introduced to a Bible study um, that was part of um, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. That's how I got introduced to Jesus. That's where I'm kind of my faith grew, um, where I just got to know Jesus as my Father. And when I started in, when I was in college, 
I really, I didn't really know that that's what I needed. I, I didn't know that I needed, that I needed to know that God could, what was my father, that he loved me like a father because mine just wasn't at that point, wasn't in the picture anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what led me to ministry. And since then, it's just been a lot of, if, if I'm called or if I'm needed or if I'm passionate, if it's an opportunity, I just, I say, yes, mm-hmm. there hasn't really been much of a, my story, there hasn't really been much of a plan for me in, t- in terms of where I've gone. But yeah, that's essentially the summary of my upbringing. Yeah. Okay. So I guess since you're already talking, I'll just go ahead, ask you some questions. Yeah. You talk about in your chapter, you know, just like adulthood happening really quickly and while you were really young. And so if you want to talk a little bit about that experience of like growing up really fast. Yeah, no, I think um, growing up with my dad, because of my of my dad's addictions and just so many things went up in the home, there was a lot of ways that I had to carry a lot emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that piece. But I think that um, when we when I was 16, my parents separated and they separated in a very traumatic way. You know, my mom just got me one night and we left. Mm-hmm. And it was very much in the course of, I want to say about 24 hours, where I just knew, like, my mom needed... You know, my mom needed me to be responsible. My mom needed me to get good grades in school. Um, She never wanted me to work until at least I graduated high school because she just wanted me to be focused on at least getting my high school diploma. Looking back now, so many years later, that was very hard because from the moment that I was about 16 up, up until my 20s, I essentially lived a life of just working and learning to survive and learning to pay the bills. And there wasn't really a time where I could sit down and be, let me take a break like any normal teenager. Let me take a break like a normal 20-something-year-old mm-hmm. that wanted that wants to travel or experience other things. And so it it was a, it was very it was very difficult, right? Because I had to just learn. It was sort of like I kind of it was just very much on the go, 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 le- le- learning how to grow up. Like I think I always say it. I feel like as much as I've grown up a lot over the years. When the moment when I was 16 and my parents left out, I always say like I felt like I had learned to be an adult in 24 hours, mm-hmm. and kind of just from there, just kind of hit the ground running. Yeah. So you you talked about God being your father, and I think that's significant. Um, so I grew up also with a single mom uh, for the yeah. first part of my life, and I remember like when I became a Christian in my early 20s, people would be like you know, yeah, it's okay. It's fine that you didn't have a father. Like God is the perfect father, you know? And, and, and so for me though, I almost felt like that it was hard for me to see God as my father because I didn't have that, you know, I had no idea what a father was, you know? So mm-hmm. for me, it was just like, Oh yeah, I don't know what that means. Like, what do you mean? God is a father? Like, I don't know what a father is, you know, but I I'm actually interested in, and I'm encouraged in that you do have a positive view of God as your father. So I don't know if you want to like talk a little bit about that. Like, and I know in in your chapter, you write about the significance of Abba to you. And so I don't know, maybe elaborate a little bit on that. And because I think that that's important. Um, I know a lot of people who didn't grow up with a father don't have a positive view of God as a father. But the fact that you do, I think is beautiful. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think um, for me, how that started was essentially when I started um, at East LA College, um, I had I had my mentor who I talk about her in the book as well. I think part of the reason why God has started to be such a positive view for me as a, um, as my father was because my very first time that I met with her, we started to pray. And that very first experience, it was, you know, it was kind of like a time of kind of like a healing prayer. And 
God, uh, there was just a memory of my father that came to mind when I was a child. And the very first thing that we did was, you know, kind of asking, okay, God, like, where are you in this memory? Because obviously this this memory is very painful, very traumatic. And God just showed up in that. And I was just so, I think I was so surprised that to me that I was like, okay, God, you care about the life of the 17 year old kid. Like I'm, I'm just a I'm just a girl like any like anyone else. I'm 17. I'm like in in the reality of the world, my life really shouldn't matter. And I remember in that moment, it was all for God. It was like, no, like Claudia, you matter to me. Like your experience matters. Your memories matter. Who you are matters to me. And so that was a huge part of it. I will say though that what's been interesting for me in my journey and like just seeing God as my father, seeing um, him as like my Abba has been, as much as I have I have seen God as a father, I've had to deal with that, that element of, you know, God, are you going to be mad at me if I don't do this? Mm-hmm. Am I going to disappoint you? Because that's so much of how I grew up with my dad. And so I have been very fortunate that I think in my faith life, God, I've always seen God as my Abba, as that safe place, because I didn't have that with my dad. But then I've had to deal with those moments or that part of my faith where I'm like, okay, God, am I going to, you know, are you not proud of me because I'm not doing the right thing? You know, am I not acting the right way? Am I not being Christian enough? And so I think there's always, there's always been that peace throughout my, in my relationship with God. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally get that. And so talking about fathers, um, I know that Robin, you have a sort of similar experience growing up with a single mom, and, but and you do have positive, I guess, memories of your father, but your father did pass away when you were very young. And so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about also growing up really quickly and really young, and what it was like for you um, in a similar situation, I guess, also growing up in the inner city. Yeah, so my father passed away when I was three and a half years old. I think a lot of the growing up quickly for me was in um, helping my mom take care of the house as she was working to cook and clean. And um, I vividly remember like being in high school and going somewhere with some high school friends and um, one of my friends didn't know how to iron their clothes. And I was like, 15, I was like flabbergasted. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know how to iron your clothes? It just, it wasn't a concept for me that their parents washed and ironed their clothes for them. Mm. I think for me, a lot of my conflict with my mom was I didn't want to grow up quickly. I didn't want to have to be, you know, this person who, you know, was responsible for the house while she was out working. And I think a lot of what comes to mind for me and what I kind of wrote in my chapter was um, when you're a single mom, you have to rely on your kids to do things um, that normally the parent takes care of and even the kids taking care of themselves. And I think when you're a single parent, you just don't have a lot of resources. And so there happens to be a lot of conflict sometimes. Um, That's what happened with me and my mom. Um, Just a lot of frustration that I wasn't growing up fast enough for her and there is a point in my chapter where I talk about the ways in which um, she was verbally abusive at times because of her frustrations for me to um, grow up quickly yeah and also so yeah growing up in, in in that setting where where it was difficult where I know you said that in Inglewood there was a lot of poverty and a lot of violence and and that you learned a lot about death um, living next to a cemetery, which I thought was really interesting. If you want to talk a little bit about that, and then also you do say that there was, just like in any other place, that there was beauty and there was ugliness. 
I'm interested to hear about just like the beauty that you experienced in somewhere where most people would be like, well, there's no beauty there. You know, it's, it's too hard or it's too whatever. I don't know. What is the, some of the beauty that you were able to experience? Yeah, I think one of the things I love about Inglewood is it's just a vibrant um, neighborhood. It's a vibrant place. I live next to next to a cemetery, but I also live next to the Great Western Forum, um, which I don't know if most people know what the Great Western Forum is, but for me, that's where the Lakers used to play. And that was like a source of pride for our neighborhood, that this mm-hmm. basketball team that, you know, won NBA champ- championships and, you know, had really awesome players, like literally played down the street from my house. So the Forum has this really huge parking lot. We would often have like community gatherings in the parking lot. People would often just walk around um, the Great Western Forum for exercise. It was really a place of centeredness, at least for me, that I grew up around. In my neighborhood, um, there was a local library that we would all go to to hang out. There are also there are just also many pockets of places where there were people who got together to be community with one another. And that's a lot of what I remember about Inglewood. But I also remember people going to the cemetery to mourn and grieve for their family members who had died. When I would be walking to school, it was very common to see just the procession line of people coming day after day, sometimes week after week, going to the cemetery to put to rest their loved ones. And I vividly remember, like, you know, the people going in these processions to be very young. Some of them the same age as my brother, who are grieving, you know, their friend who had passed away from gun violence. And those are things that I, like, seared into my memory of, like, you know, death is not something that happens to people who are really old death is something that happens to people who are really young Mm -hmm. and death comes unexpectedly yeah Yeah. so i'm I'm interested in the the contrast i know both claudia and and robin you both grew up in the inner city and then Teresa, i'm interested in your story and how you you're Chinese-American, and so you grew up in many ways very privileged economically or, or, or educationally. Um, so what was your transition? How did that go from like, all right, we're going to move into uh, somewhere where it might be difficult or, or yeah, just, just kind of that, that transition? Yeah, so when I mentioned that, that I mentioned earlier about when I was in college being involved with the campus ministry that just really took the life of Jesus very seriously and wanted to um, live out like scriptures, specifically like Matthew 25 and Isaiah 58, I decided to go on like a summer urban program in inner city LA in between my sophomore and junior years. And that kind of was the transformative summer for me. Um, I had kind of come into college really just wanting to be, you know, pre-med, wanting to become a doctor, not really sure kind of what my motivations were for that, because in the, in the Chinese immigrant community, there's such a value for certain professions like medicine and law and engineering. And so I had to sort that out in terms of why I wanted to go into medicine. And that summer actually helped me start that process. And so I decided to go just, I mean, I could stay in LA, I guess, for the summer. And we moved into Northwest Pasadena and volunteered with a, a nonprofit that works with youth in Northwest Pasadena. And we lived in an apartment complex. We just moved into this like one bedroom apartment complex with 
four others of my teammates and just experience life there. And really what was transformative to me was the people that I met in the complex. I think we were just, we were there, we were different. You know, we were actually a pretty diverse team. I was one of two Asian women, there was a white woman and then two black women. And so just, we were, we just stuck, stuck out. Um, and it was predominantly Latino community in that apartment. And so just talking to the neighbors, um, meeting their kids, getting to play with their kids, just hearing different stories. I think God just opened my heart that summer. And, and also combined with studying scripture from Amos, and other prophets about God's heart for the marginalized and the oppressed. It just really moved me in a way that it just changed direction of of the course of, of what I wanted to do in the future and who I wanted to be around, whose stories I wanted to learn more from. And so that summer was pretty transformative. And then from that summer on, I just decided to pursue other either volunteer opportunities um, or leadership opportunities or inter- yeah, internships. Like I, I decided to, after I graduated, I decided to do a tier internship, kind of similar to that program where we moved into South LA and uh, we didn't really do much ministry. It was a lot of studying scripture, reading some books, reading books from by people who had done ministry in urban poor communities and living community together and getting to know our neighbors. And that was two years of that. And so... Yeah, I think slowly just God, God has just kind of been opening my heart in even now, you know, I guess it's been 15 years um, in new ways as well. And just learning and sitting and learning instead of doing or helping. I feel like I'm just more sitting at people's feet and learning and just appreciating the beauty of the community that I live in. Yeah. So I, there was a part that I thought was really that I, I just loved your vulnerability and you talked about. I think it was that you moved away and then you moved back and the people that you had been ministering to or, or, or that your husband had been, I guess it was like a Bible study, um, that you noticed that they that there was some bitterness and some anger um, towards you guys. And and you had mentioned that, or I guess they mentioned that it was, that they sorry, that they felt like you guys had a sort of project mentality um, and that you were, you know, maybe doing ministry instead of getting to know them as people. Um, so what was that experience like making sense of that? And, and, and so, yeah. So what was that experience like? Yeah. Um, so that was also kind of coupled with a a really difficult time in, in my life where my son was diagnosed with this chronic illness and we were going through all this, like just a lot of new and unexpected things as a new family. Um, my son was like, I think not even one yet. And we were kind of in and out of the hospital a lot. So it was kind of, that was kind of the the main thing that was going on in my life. But in my chapter, I kind of describe how that experience of pain and trauma, it kind of, and, and our community kind of coming back around us after we moved back, um, that kind of opened up new doors and, and um, it opened up kind of new conversations, I think, that we could have with people because we were in such a vulnerable place. Um, and I share about how, in the past, I had learned to just like how to do quote do ministry, you know, like serve or lead a Bible study, and and like we had no capacity to do any of that as we were dealing with my son's illness. And so, um, but that was kind of there was a grace from God in that it opened up like people brought meals to us, it opened up our home a little bit, so people came over and we just kind of sat around and they were present to us and talked to us. And that's kind of when uh, some of the young adults in our community just shared about just vulnerably from, you know, from their standpoint about how they were hurt by the way that we did ministry in the past. So my, my, my husband um, was the youth pastor of the church community that we're a part of. This is back like 10, over 10 years ago. 
And um, these were some of the youth that grew up in, in that youth group. And so it was, again, it was very kind of painful to hear, but also it was kind of the beginning of, I think for me, like my deconstruction process of just what ministry looks like and what missions even mean. And for me, while it was painful, it was also, I knew it was like, I was, we were really privileged to, for them to share that with us. And I kind of, I just had to process it for a long time. I, you know, I, I, I had to kind of process like where me as a privileged person, like, what does that, what does that look like for me to live in a community like this and what should my posture be? And so I think a lot of those questions, you know, I just had to really process and sort through during that time. Um, I described that it was a little painful when some people shared that they needed space from us. Because it's just hard when your friends, you know, when they say they need space, it's like, oh, but I need you right now. But I also understood just from my experience with my son that, like, there's when there's pain and trauma, you know, there's there needs to be processing and there needs to be time away. And so I understood that. So it was just a really mix, a, a big mix of emotions. But I think coming out of it, I've just learned a lot about how I see. I, I see my community differently and I see my friendships a little bit differently now. Yeah, I do think that it, it is so powerful um, how you were able to connect like their pain and your pain with your son and mm-hmm. how and I and I do love that you say like that your journey, you know, of chronic illness with your son kind of connected that was or was equal to the journey in your fight for justice. Um, I just really think that's so powerful how you were able to just connect that. I mean, going through something so difficult with your son, which I'm so sorry about that. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, and how you were, you know, able to reflect on that in, in community and in missions and in your your living situation. And and so with that, I guess the one last thing I want to ask is just that idea of like straddling two worlds. Mm-hmm. One in your personal life, you know, being a woman of color, being a Chinese American woman, and then two, you know, being that you you are dealing with with chronic illness and you are dealing with just the the horrific journey of of you know going in and out of the hospital with your son and and then also at the same time knowing that there's people in your community who also have trauma, like you said. And then yeah, and then you also do talk about uh, what do you call it? Being on two worlds as as a medical professional, you know, as with a, uh-huh. with being in the hospital as a patient, but at the same time, you know, knowing the background and, and everything that's happening. And so, what has been your journey of just just straddling two worlds? Um, how have yeah. you made sense of that, you know, and, and all of that? Yeah, I mean, when you describe it like that, like man, it sounds so overwhelming. Um, I think for me, I just like I, I what I learned with my son in going through, um, just, yeah, just his diagnosis and just the surgeries and the surgery and the, and just hospitalizations, I learned just to take things one day at a time, um, and just be present in the moment. And I think that that's what helps me, um, navigate all the worlds that I'm in. I try to see the themes that are present in each of those worlds and how they tie together. So for example, like we talk about pain and trauma. I just, I learned that with my experience with pain and medical trauma, that pain doesn't discriminate, right? It doesn't, like, I, you know, I'm from, you know, a privileged background, but I still experience pain. And I think that experience going through with my son, I realized, like, it, it just opened my heart to other people's pain and how pain and trauma for me, I think before when I did not have an, a deep experience of pain, I'd be like, well, pain is, people have pain and either it's their fault or it's someone else's fault, you know? And I, I didn't see... I kind of was more removed from it. And now I feel just a lot more, I guess, 
close closer to other people's pain where I feel like there's some there's a kinship or a solidarity in that and so um instead of a burden for me it's more of a it kind of lightens the load because we kind of bear the pain with other people with community and then in terms of being Chinese American but then also educated straddling those two worlds I've kind of learned, and I think through the, you know, in writing the book, I've learned to just find my voice, my unique voice as a woman of color, but also privileged. Mm-hmm. And I've learned, or I'm learning, I guess, how to use my voice in more privileged spaces to advocate for those who may not be invited in those spaces. And so I'm learning to speak up a little bit more. And I think, and yeah, just find find my voice, find the little battles I want to fight and, mm-hmm. and just kind of go after them. And and then with medicine too, and I so my my patient population is is predominantly Latino as well, and I think every day I go to work and I'm reminded how beautiful and strong like the Latino community is in East LA, and and so it's like in some ways it's I know I'm different, but I feel so blessed to be able to be in this world, be in the, be in this community, and so, you know be able to practice medicine in yeah in this community. Yeah. Okay, so Robin, I know since we're talking about the two worlds thing, um, can you talk to me about your experience? I know that in your chapter you talk about how you are, everyone that you knew was black growing up. Your your mailman was black, your, you know, the librarian was black. And then um, you ended up going to an all-black uh, college. And then from there you transferred to, was it USC Santa Cruz? UC Santa Cruz. UC Santa Cruz, Okay. I'm still trying to figure out my my, Cal, my California <laughs> universities. But anyway, so yeah, so what was that kind of transition like and just your experiences? Um, and then I know you do also, you mentioned the word exile. I don't know, there's so much behind that, right? Exile, there's so much comes in exile. So what was your experience in that? Yeah, so I think I was starting to, or trying to paint a picture of what my perception of my community was like before Santa Cruz, because it was just different. And growing up in Inglewood, my neighborhood was predominantly black. A lot of neighborhoods in LA are very segregated like that. So you have all black neighborhoods, all white neighborhoods, all Latino neighborhoods. And yeah, one of the things I forgot to mention earlier was I did go to a historically black college uh, right after graduating from high school. And then I transferred uh, mostly because I couldn't afford to go to an out-of-state school that was private. And having a single mom, we didn't actually really talk about finances that much. But did wind up going to UC Santa Cruz. Uh, One of the things that I, how I describe it in my book was a forest full of white people. And, uh, or what seemed to be a forest full of white people. There were definitely non-white people there. But I think part of the thing that feels hard about Santa Cruz is it's not that it's just a school that is predominantly white, but it's literally in the middle of a forest. There's um, redwoods, deer, lots of animals. Um, and being from the city, that was just very, it was very different for me. And I use the word exile because I felt like it was so far removed from what I had known growing up um, that I was just in a, a whole new country. I mean, even though I was literally in the same state and same country, uh, just a different city. But I think for me, what also felt really different was just the culture of Santa Cruz. When you go to a predominantly white institution, 
the culture, it feels very suffocating. I think that was new for me. I had never known what it meant to be in an environment where white culture dominated because I was in my little bubble of Inglewood or Spelman, where at Spelman, you know, like it was very much dominated by Southern culture, Southern Black culture. And so I think that was new for me. I think not only did I feel suffocated, I felt very isolated and I felt very alone. It felt very jolting. And I think there's two responses when you're in a place of exile. You can either choose to be in denial and cling to what feels familiar or to ask questions of like, why does this feel so hard? Or you can do both. And I, I think at times I probably did do both of trying to cling to what I had always known, which is normal. Um, but I think the thing for me that I talk about in my book was, you know, in these spaces where African-American students are isolated at predominantly white institutions or feel um, smothered by white culture, what do you do? How do you care for them? And I think that one of the things I talk about in my book was how I wrestled through that feeling of um, feeling in exile. And I actually sought out women of color and asked them how did they navigate this space because I was drowning. And one of the things that one of the women in leadership who I also was involved in university um, shared with me was to find an advocate, an ally, where they saw you and you shared your struggles with so that you didn't feel so isolated. And I think that was very life-giving for me. Um, but it also was a choice to choose to share vulnerably and also was a choice to ask questions as to kind of where are some of the areas in my heart that feel broken, not just about the feelings of being suffocated about white culture, but uh, if I take that piece and I look at all the other things, there were other things in my heart that I had brought into Santa Cruz that had nothing to do with where I was at, but had all to do with where I was from and how I was raised um, and the ways in which I had literally built up walls to protect myself from the world. I think that when I was in uh, this feeling of like feeling I'm in exile, I started to look at all those pieces and ask questions and bring God into that place uh, because I really needed God. I needed God to help me survive because that was where I was. I felt like I was in survival mode and I felt like God was just like, this is how you survive. You need to let me in. You need to let me protect you. And that's kind of what I did. So there's something, I, I know that all three of you kind of mentioned community and this is a side note but I <laughs> I wish I could like ask more follow-up questions I'm just trying to get all three of you and so I'm like oh I hate that I have to keep changing the subject moving on but anyway going back to what I was saying I I feel like all three of you community had such played such an important role in your journeys and and just meeting God through people through community um university in your case or I guess all three of your cases um so Claudia and for you I know you mentioned like Molly a lot person that you you know kind of took you in and discipled you and 
And um, so talk to me about just how community really opened new doors for you or introduced you to Jesus or healed you even. Yeah, I think um, to me, community, and I actually didn't realize this now, like looking back at it now and like, because at this point we're we're talking about the last, I want to say 15 years or so. About no, actually about twelve or fourteen years, something like that. To me, community meant family because when so when my mom and I separated from my dad, we lost all of our family. So we it was in the course of a few hours where all my aunts and uncles on my mom's side, everybody on my dad's side, we kind of just disconnected from everybody. Because of where my dad was, our fear was if anybody knows where we are, even family, what if he finds us? Mm-hmm. You know, and so we were like, no one can find us, no one can know, and so we we ended up just very much isolated from everything and everybody. And so for me, when I got it, when I first started at Eli, that's actually what called me so much to Jesus was community. Um, I remember that the very first, first week that I started at ELAC, I met a girl next to me and I'm a talker. I talk a lot. And this girl did not really talk at all. So I was, um, I was essentially the one talking the entire time. And then when she did get the little bit of space to have a word in, she told me about the Bible study on campus. And so that's where I went. Molly, I remember just made me feel welcome. A week later after I had joined that Bible study, Molly saw me from really far away and she just called me out and like kind of made a sign for me to come over. And I just remember that the entire time that I was at Eli, just being surrounded by these people who, you know, they, a lot of them didn't know me. I was very different, obviously, back then. I was very unfiltered. I was still, you know, struggling with my parents' separation. I was struggling with the reality of what my dad, like, what my dad's addiction did to our family. My mom was a single mom. At that point, she was undocumented. And so, you know, I was also dealing with, like, well, what happens if she loses her job? You know, she doesn't have papers. She can't just go out and get a job just anywhere. And it was like literally in that time throughout my entire time at at ELAC where, you know, people came around me to pray for me. In fact, I share, I don't know if I share this in my book actually, but there was a moment where my mom did lose her job and she couldn't find a job for a while. And for about a year, I became the head at the household and I was working a part-time job. So I was literally working very, uh, I think I was earning about $600 in one month. And that's exactly what we had to pay for rent. Mm. So there was literally no wiggle room for food. And it was in that time where my landlords cooked for us. Um, A lot of my friends helped us to buy groceries. It was in that time where my mentor got together with me every single week to pray with me so that God could provide for us. Pray with me when I was in pain because I just couldn't understand why, why were things so hard? Why couldn't my mom get a job? And the same thing happened when I left, when I graduated, I was actually very afraid because I wasn't, I had been in this community for seven years and I just didn't know. I was like, Lord, this is my family, right? These are the people that I know. I don't have anybody else. You know, what happens if whatever church I go to, I don't find that family. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that when I started at New Life, which is the church that I'm still at right now, actually, Teresa and I go to the same church. It was the same, like, it was the same thing. People welcomed me. I made family. People let me borrow their cars. People have prayed for me. Um, Just recently, you know, I have been going through a very tough time in the last few years of deconstructing my faith, but also that has been kind of isolating in itself. But I've had people just be my friend. And I've actually had new people in the church that I wasn't talking to before just come around me and be there for me. So I think for me, 
community has essentially, I think, it's what brought me into the faith. It's also what has kept me in the faith. It's also what has helped me when I was when I've been in moments when I've wanted to leave the faith. Yeah. Without community, I think I definitely I don't know if I would have a faith without my community. Oh, amen. So I know that each of you kind of mentioned. Actually, before I I ask you that question, I'm curious, Claudia, to hear about how like. When you first, so you were working um, at this point, I'm, I'm assuming as a social worker, or is that, would, would that be like considered your title? C- uh, case manager, case social manager. worker. So case manager. And then, so you, you um, meet the girl, you know, the young girl with the ponytail in the backpack, and that had sparked something in you to begin he- your healing process. Um, so mm-hmm. if you want to talk to me a little bit just about like how that healing process began. Yeah, if by that point I had been going through um, some therapy already. So one thing that's been very unique or interesting in my journey was that um, because of the life that I have, because my mom, you know, was single mom at this point, when I went, when I got out of ELAC, I had to start working right away. I went into the space of working with people with addictions, working with teenagers. At one point, I worked with um, at, a, at a facility that was all men who were struggling with addictions. From there, that's when I started to work with all women. Then I went to, into a domestic violence shelter, which leads me, that's where I, um, I encountered this girl. All of that is I've been working in all of these places with so much trauma that literally hit exactly what what I lived through. That's how God has brought about my healing. With every client that I have, there's some clients that have just come out to me specifically, you know, where God, something is triggered. And I just got a sense from God, like, okay, Claudia, you know, we need to start working on some things, right? Here's another part of your wound. Here's another part of the um, relationship with your dad to work on. Here's another part of that life that you had to live with your mom of moving from here to there, being homeless, you know, so many different things. And like just what entails when a woman and her daughter or just a family are trying to leave um, an abusive situation. So when this girl got out, I remember that um, she, what struck me was that she got out of the van when she arrived to our shelter. And it just took me back because this girl literally had black hair similar to mine, a backpack, a hoodie that she was wearing, you know, you could, it was like, it was at a really crazy time in the day. Like they had, I think they had been up all night just trying to get to our shelter. It was, in, it was just a whole ordeal for them. And when she got up, it hit, it just it struck chord in me because I just remembered so vividly, even though I never went to a shelter, I just remember being in like the moment that I looked at this girl, I just, I stood there kind of shocked and just remembered the night that, that I left with my mom, where I got my backpack, I put on my hoodie. I had black hair a lot longer at that point. It was in a ponytail. My mom and I left we're just trying to realize okay we just left this person that's abusive so now what's going to happen where are we going to go where are we going to live so when this girl got out it just brought all that back to me like in the course of seconds I was just like oh my god like this I felt like that this this girl was me right and and I remember with this girl like mom was so busy with the other siblings that you know she had a hard time kind of being able to pull this girl in and kind of be okay being able to be that that presence for her and and that was very similar for me right I think because of where we were my mom she tried in a lot of ways to make sure I had everything I needed but it was hard for her to be that emotional support for me and so when I saw her I was like oh wow I remember being this girl being this girl that didn't have that support being this girl that felt at such a young age felt really alone and didn't know what to do and just didn't know what was next and so when she came it that's what spurred me to like I need to go back into counseling I need to go back into what is that next level or that next layer of what it meant to be um, a victim a child victim of domestic violence you know because it's one thing when you witness violence right but I think when you're also a direct recipient of it from somebody that cares about you that 
that leaves a different wound. And so when that girl came um, out of that band, that kind of just, it, I was like, whoa, okay, here's this wound again. Here's this next part, and here's how I, what are the wounds that are still not resolved from when I was in that same place that that girl was? So, Teresa, you mentioned you have this line in your book that I, I really found that I found was really powerful. And you said, um, God is more than a fixer of problems. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And I thought that was that was profound, mainly because when we're going through just difficult situations, we want to make sure that everything's going to be fine or it's going to be fixed or, you know, we want to kind of end the story with like, and everything's OK, you know, but God is more than that, right? Like you say, he's just with us. So if you want to talk a little bit about just, I don't know, just elaborate on that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that's probably, um, my, my chapter is titled Emmanuel, God with us. And that I would say that aspect of God has been so deepened in my process in the last four years, kind of going through my journey with my son and then also being in the community, the church community that I'm in and also the UCLA community as well. I think that when you ask the community question, I think for me, what community means or what community is to me is Emmanuel, because I see when there's deep community um, and deep solidarity, I see God in that. And so in my chapter, um, when I kind of made that connection was actually like one of the most distressing moments with my son. It was actually in the hospital. I remember being in the hospital bed, like it was at night. We had just found out some ultrasound results that my son's liver condition was progressing, was worsening. And for so long, we had hoped that it would be completely healed. And we were going to, we were getting prayer every weekend, you know, for healing. And our son was doing well. And then we had this hospitalization that kind of knocked us out. And and then even more evidence saying that actually it's not getting better. And so in that moment of like, sobbing into the pillow, like holding my son. I was just like, God, I, I mean, it was more of a prayer of desperation. Like I need you to be more than this. Even though I know he can heal my son, like I can't put all of my hope in that because if he's not healed in the way that I want him to be healed, like I'll be so devastated. And so I needed kind of, you know, like I, I wrote, I needed God to be bigger than that. And I felt like in that moment, God was saying like, I am bigger, you know, I'm here, I'm present with you. And that's actually what you need the most in your most painful moments. And after that moment, I began realizing actually God is with me in so many other places, you know, through my friendships, through my family, through my kids, through my patients. And so I just, it just, yeah, that experience of like deep pain kind of opened my eyes. Yeah, that God is actually with me everywhere. He's not distant. It's not like he's not a distant God where I have to like ask and plead for answers to prayers or solutions to problems. Like I can, the problem and the solution, or the, sorry, the problem and the pain might still be there, but because God is with me, I can keep walking or I can keep going and I can still have hope. And so that's, that has become more important to me than any solution to a problem or healing to my son's illness. Robin, my final question for you is, I really, really loved how you contrasted like the rich young ruler and how like basically that didn't resonate with you. Instead, like the story of Lazarus resonated with you. So if, or I guess the parable or like the, the, not the actual Lazarus rising from the dead, but the other one. So I guess if you want to just talk a little bit about that and just like your experience of constantly hearing the rich young ruler, but then also resonating with Lazarus. Yeah, sure. 
So I think one of the reasons why I talk about those different passages is mostly because I feel like the community that I was in, university in particular, had a certain way of shaping young leaders. And I think um, when I heard the young rich ruler story, I felt like the way in which I heard it was people who have come from places of privilege um, need to be brought down and understand those who don't have privilege. Now, I do want to acknowledge I do have privileges in being a United States citizen, of being highly educated. There are ways in which I do have privilege. But I do feel like in that context, it felt very directed towards some of the people in my community who had come from predominantly wealthy uh, families or um, had white privilege. And I think for me, uh, that felt really hard because it felt like it was very one-sided. It felt like it didn't really address some of the systems, some of the uh, ways in which I myself have felt oppressed and burdened by Uh, There needs to be a tone in which you address not just one audience in college ministry. I think for me, I really needed to talk about the ways in which I can address systems of poverty. I can address systems of violence as a person of color, not how I can let go of my privilege Um, Because I didn't feel like I had any. Um, I didn't feel like I came from a place of privilege. I felt like I came from a place that was oppressed and had faced oppression. And so that, I think, was what I was kind of like getting at when I was talking about that. I think in particular um, for my readers who identify as white and are in college ministry, I wanted to challenge their idea of how they care for Black students in their um, communities, uh, because there needs to be an addressing of not just um, one-size-fits-all type of uh, ministry, because what students of color, especially Black students, bring into college spaces are different than what uh, white students or Latino students or Asian American students bring in. And they need to be addressed differently. And so I think that that was what um, was churning for me in terms of addressing how to care and how to minister to students of color in very specific ways and even how to challenge them. Uh, Because I think sometimes when you come from um, the inner city, when you come from a background where you've seen oppression, you've seen poverty, um, you go on missions trips and you're all like, this is like going home. This ain't nothing new to me. What do I have to learn from this? And I think for some students, they're like, they've never seen that before. But when you've seen that before, when you've grown up in it, I think that there needs to be a kind of like unraveling of like, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? And I also think there needs to be a system of empowerment for students of color to address these issues and to not feel like you are the victim, but you are a person, you are a child of God. And I think that um, students of color need to realize that um, the authority that God has given them is to address these systems of disempowerment, of oppression, with the authority that He has placed in them.
So I want to ask you guys, so I guess I'll start with Claudio. So what brings you hope? I think what's, what's, what's interesting when I heard that question, because um, in, in the last recent years, I've actually been struggling a lot with feeling hopeless in a lot of different areas of my life and things that just, you know, haven't gone the way that I wanted to, kind of crazy things that happened that I couldn't control. Especially, I think, even politically, what's been going on, what's been happening with so many communities of color, what I've seen, what I see is happening to so many immigrants from, you know, from Latin America. So all of that just brings up so many ways that I'm like, wow, it's just so easy to be, to feel like everything's hopeless. Mm. But um, I think especially because my father is still undocumented and very much living under the fear of, you know, is he going to get detained? Is at some point, some, is a raid going to come where he's at and going to take him, right? And so kind of dealing with all of that, I think for me is realizing that um, that there's there's still more, yeah. that we're not done. I think in re- in the last year or so, as I've as I've heard from more um, w- women of color, especially Latinas, like Ines McBride, like you, like so many different people that I've been introduced to, you know, I've just been reminded, like, you know, Lord, there's still there's still hope, and it's not over, especially for people of color, for women of color, me as a Latina, like, Lord, it's not over, mm. right? Like, you still have more work to do. Like, you are still calling us to fight. Like, it's not whatever we thought was, like, or what we've been taught is what we're supposed to do as as Latinas or whatever our voice supposed to be. Realizing, like, Jesus, like, no, you do give us a voice, and you do give us authority, and we can exercise that authority and we can speak to systems of power and we can speak our truth and know that we're going to be listened to, that you are, that you are with us as we're trying to make, the, uh, create that space. It brings hope in places that still feel hopeless. So that's, I would say that right now, that's, that's what brings me hope. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're still here and we're, we're still fighting. So 100%. And like I said, like we ain't going nowhere. So. Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. that's good yeah okay so Teresa how about you what what brings you hope for me what brings me hope is actually the resilience and the strength of my church community and the community that I, I live and work in um so it's funny I was thinking about this question and um a story comes to mind from actually yesterday. I, so as a doctor I have the honor and privilege of um, delivering babies mm-hmm. and yesterday I was a part of this beautiful delivery of a woman who, it was her fifth baby, but her last pregnancy, she, she lost her baby because um, the baby was born premature. And I remember as she was going through this pregnancy, around the time when her last baby died, she was going through so much anxiety and just, you know, just nervous about this, you know, current pregnancy and getting to walk with her during that time was just, I mean, it was amazing for me just for her to share, but then also um, for us to walk through it together. And then yesterday I got to deliver her baby and it was so beautiful. She, I mean, just, I will never forget like the look on her face when she delivered this baby. Like it was like a mixture Mm -hmm. of like joy, relief, this glow about her. And I think that to me is a picture of resilience through kind of the one of the worst tragedies you could ever go through and so that yeah it's a picture of hope it's a picture of like the strength that she had to like bring this new life into the world you know walking through the pain of what might happen with this baby and and so that I think is that picture is what gives me hope I feel like she's kind of representation of like yeah the resilience and strength and courage of the people I get to be around and Mm -hmm. and it kind of helps me have hope for even the pain and the trauma that I've been through as well. Yeah, I mean, there's something just so profound about just seeing what what people can go through and, you know, like just just go through it. It's like, yeah, it's so moving. Thank you for that. 
Um, and lastly, Robin, so what brings you hope? One of the things that I talk about in my book is my experience of healing not being something I saw coming, but rather something I saw in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that gives me hope are the glimpses I see in the rearview mirror of healing, not just in my life, but in the lives of people around me. Um, The stories of the people that I've encountered, who I've known, who have wrestled with a lot, who have gone through a lot, and their stories aren't, you know, completely um, healed or finished, but they're little glimpses of healing that I see that keeps me moving forward. My story isn't even complete. It's still a work in progress, but it's the little aspects of knowing that, oh, this used to feel really hard. Now it doesn't. Or even to know that a friend who has gone through a recent trauma is able to grieve and laugh and to live a life that brings them joy. I think those give me um, hope and keep me moving forward to want to see more of those um, rearview mirror mirror stories uh, Mm -hmm. where I see that God is at work so that I can keep moving in the hope that um, he is at work in other places. I think one of the things that I have always held on to is that God is Jehovah Raha, He is a healer. He is a redeemer. And so even when life feels overburdened, suffocating, um, that the character of who God is will always remain. Um, And I do see glimpses of that. Um, So that's what gives me hope. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, And I love that, the way that you worded that, like rear view mirror healing. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm going to use that. (laughs) So Guys, this was wonderful. I'm I'm really excited um, to just have like three interweaving stories. I've never done this before. So I was like really, 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 really excited. Um, is there anything else that you guys want to share? I do want to say I'm so thankful for your voices in this book. I mean, like I said, your chapters were so moving and you guys were just so vulnerable with your stories. Uh, each, I mean, each of you have just such profound uh, narratives and powerful and the way that you've used your what you've been through and to to be a force of change in the world and I think that um, that honestly brings me hope and so thank you guys for that Um, so yeah is there anything else that you guys would like to share Um, anything else you guys would like to say I do want to say definitely go get voices rising Um, for those of you listening I think that it will be um, just a just a source of, of joy and inspiration. So yeah, anything you guys want to share? Well, I, I just Kat, I just want to thank you for this opportunity. I mean, I've been a fan of your podcast for a long time and and uh, just grateful for your voice actually. Yeah, for the podcast and just who you're interviewing and your words. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think um, Kat, I want, want to say like, thank you as well because um, I just like Teresa, I have been listening to your podcast. Like I actually... Sometimes I think I've done up to like two episodes a day when oh. I'm in my car driving somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm just really grateful because I think I hadn't really experienced a space where women of color could just share their stories and kind of share where they're coming from and how they're just really trying to, you know, trying to follow Jesus and trying to figure their life out. And so I'm very, um, I'm very grateful that we 
you gave us the opportunity to share our story, you know, and I think, um, I think the last thing I would want to say, which is very short, I think that, and like similar to kind of what we talked about when I said it gives me hope is that there's still more, you know, that we're definitely having gotten to the end. And I think whenever I wake up sometimes or I'm at work with my clients, I think sometimes I can forget that it's not the end. Like we haven't reached the end of anything yet. And so, yeah, I think that's definitely one thing that I would want to say, like, there's still so much more to come because I, that's something I've had to get reminded of. At the end, there is nothing like, there's still so many things to hope for and so many things to fight for. You guys are just doing such powerful work, each of you in your unique situation. So, I also just wanted to chime in just a little bit about the importance of going to therapy. Um, yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think we talked about that that much, but I talked about it a little bit in my in my chapter. But I think that like one of the things that I feel like I was taught growing up was that you know therapy there's there's a huge stigma around therapy but I feel like I just want to give um whoever is listening the freedom to experience the healing presence that therapy can bring if you've experienced trauma in your life I did not experience healing without over 15 years of therapy um and not just therapy but I had a spiritual director I talked about my trauma endlessly um, until I felt like there was experience of healing. But I think when you hold that in, the only person it hurts is you. And so I think, yeah, I just wanna affirm the healing presence that therapy can bring, even the ways in which there are spaces and places to have therapy that is free. Um, so if you are wondering where those are, need to uh, figure that out, feel free to reach out to me and I will definitely help you out with that. So good. Yes. Thank you for mentioning that. I think that is definitely so important. Therapy has been a huge part of my healing process as well. And thank you. Thank you for bringing that up, Robin. All right, guys. Well, I'm so thankful for this time, um, for your stories, for the work that you're doing in the world. Um, this is like, honestly, the purpose of this podcast is just to hear from women who are just out here, you know, getting it done and just doing it. And so thank you for, yeah, definitely. Yeah. For, for being um, examples of that.